Hiles bring us a message on creation. I think we're into, uh, I'm not sure where he's going with it tonight, but he's past day six, so he's going to bring us a good message on God's creation, so we'll welcome Matt back up. Matt Miles from Creation Truth Foundation. Good evening, everybody. Well, cooled off a little today. We finally figured out our air conditioner in our hotel room. Good thing we got that figured out for this evening. Um, Apologize to Bob this afternoon as we were freezing to death in the hotel room. Well, tonight, the, the topic this evening will be, we are going to speed forward in history 1,656 years, according to the Word of God. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the flood. And so, so to share with you a couple things that are on the table that deal with some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight that I, I may or may not have a whole lot of time to cover. Um, good book put out by, by Answers in Genesis a few years ago when they were working on their Ark Encounter. The question comes up so often, how many animals on the Ark? I think we all have that that. Maybe a mental picture of what we think was on there and what they look like and how many and all of that. Um, as much as this is geared to, to students, it's a really good book for adults, too. <laughs> Gives some really, really cool ideas, thoughts on, on the issue of, of how many animals on the ark. Okay? This book here, written by John Morris... I mentioned his father last night, Dr. Henry Morris, from Institute of Creation Research. Um, John wrote this, I don't know how many years ago, and it just got updated uh, a year and a half ago. And it's a very, very good book. So just talking about the, the global nature of the flood. Okay, So some of, the, some of the things I'll be sharing tonight are in here uh, for sure. Uh, John was a, um, uh, he is a, a geologist by study and by, by trade. And then this is a little placemat that several people requested um, that I'll talk about here in a minute. It's a, it's a timeline of the first beginning, beginning few chapters of Genesis. And, and then on through Babel and all the way down to Jacob. Okay, it's a nice little visual thing. And so I, I call this our, our creation placemat. Um, <clears throat> lack of a better term. It's also got really cool stuff on the back, too, to kind of just read through, check out. All right. So a few things that might help with, with the study we have tonight. As we turn tonight, once again to Genesis. Genesis chapter 5. That's where I want to start tonight. Tonight's message... is a year you should never forget. I, I titled this message, I don't know how many years ago now. I've never been good with titles. Um, but I went to a church and, and th- pretty much this message, this message continually, uh, I, I continually add things to this message because the Lord continues to teach me things. And so I have to decide what I have to, to take out and what I have to leave in. But the title has stayed the same. I find when we're talking about this portion of history, once again, it is truth. 
The event of the flood is an actual catastrophic event. An actual judgment against sin. There are some that don't agree with me there. I mean, like, if you, if you watch the History Channel and you, there's anything about the flood on the History Channel, don't agree with that. Well, it was just kind of, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty massive flood right there where Noah lived. That is not what this says. There are other, I use the term very loosely, creation ministries. A group called Reasons to Believe. Their leader, Dr. Hugh Ross, does not believe in the global nature and impact of the flood. He believes in a the universal impact in Noah's local area only, not globally. I struggle with that. I struggle with that often because he has very, very large Christian ministries ear and influence with that worldview. That is not what we're going to read this evening. What, what the details of this says. See, I titled it a year because I can't tell you the number of people when I ask the simple question, specifically of students when I'm at camps in the summer and I get to teach on this topic, and I ask them, how long was the flood? What is the most given answer? 40 days and 40 nights. And that is not correct. That's not correct. It was a year event. Just over. And I find what what has happened in our life is the same as how we've read about Adam and Eve and how we've studied about all the others. We've studied them as stories. We didn't bother to check all the details that are actually written in Scripture that support that it was a, an actual historical event. Because some, some of the things we're going to read tonight, it is hard for me to even wrap my mind around what is happening as we're reading it. That we would be here at all tonight after this kind of event 4,300 years ago. In history. So tonight, I begin, I begin with my placemat. Chapter 5. Everybody there? Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the chapter that nobody reads. Unless you can't get to sleep. It's, it's that chapter that is, well... When Adam was, uh, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. And then it continues to go through a succession of gentlemen. All of these guys right here. You know, I sat in my office one day after I joined this ministry and and I was studying and it was like the Lord took a two by four and smacked me upside my head with a realization that I had never made in all of my years of ministry and study. 
that these gentlemen in chapter 5, they didn't live after each other. I always kind of had this picture that they lived after each other. I did not have a picture in my mind of how much they overlapped in time. Living at the same time. And it, and it was just like, what? I went, wait a minute. And I started charting it. I'm like, okay, I got to see. I'm, I'm a visual guy, okay? And so I start charting it. Trying to figure out a spacing for the number of years, and da 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 da. Got this. I'm a nerd again, and and I, I laid it out, and before my eyes, I went, "Oh my!" Adam's the top line. For anybody that wants to like argue or, or discuss with, discuss with me, that these years were not actual years. I need to know why the Bible would not tell us actual years. There's nothing biblical that says those weren't real years. I mean, I understand. When you hear 930 years, you're like, but that's like, he's like one big wrinkle, right? I mean, he can't even, he can't even remotely stand up straight, right? I mean, like he is so hunched over. I mean, that's a visual image if we're trying to picture somebody 930 years old, right? Now, wait, was Adam, what was Adam's genetics like? Perfect. Even with the curse in chapter 3, genetically speaking, his days were becoming numbered, but his genetic, I mean, they were good. I mean, they were really good, okay? So, what do you think Seth might have been like? Pretty good. <laughs> you understand our genetics are not getting better, right? I mentioned that the other night. <laughs> They're not getting better, Okay. I have no issues with how long the Word of God says they lived. Now, here, here's what my worldview says, more I study. I kind of I argue the side that says they most likely age slower than we do today. So maybe 900 was like our 100 years old today. So how, how, long, could, how long could they have had kids? How long could their, their childbearing years have been? How long, how long was puberty? Okay, okay, let's not go there. So, so, I mean, when we when we begin thinking about those things, we begin thinking they had large families, and that was not an issue. I mean, that wasn't an issue at all. I, I need you to see and understand. As long as Adam lived, he got to know his well, obviously his son, and his grandson, and his great. Great, 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 great grandson. That's what hit me sitting in my office one day. I went, what? I mean, we're talking, what was that, five, six? I can never remember. I don't know why I can't remember that. I've taught this on how many times. I think I said it wrong once and now I'm confused. It's five or six. Somebody, great. What a testimony. What, a, what an opportunity to share legacy in his family. I am on the side that he didn't... Well, I'm on the side that I, I, I kind of lean towards maybe, maybe Lemek there, Noah's father, who is the last most likely in this line that ever saw him. Noah and, and Adam just missed each other by like 50-some years when you do the math. 
I, I, I have no reason to ever consider that if they're on this list that they did not know each other and spend time together. Like, there's no biblical reason why they didn't, like they would have lived a long way from each other or something. They never knew each other. No reason for that. I, I very much believe they knew each other. So, so, so Limit could ask Grandpa, Grandpa, <laughs> what was it like the first time you saw Grandma? Yeah, I mean, I, I know you've told me that before, but tell me again. Grandpa, can I see your belly? <laughs> Why? Why? Why would he ask that? Come on. Because I, I write on the side that says, Adam and Eve had no belly buttons. They wouldn't have needed them. What a physical testimony to everybody else on the planet. As funny as that sounds, what a physical testimony. We were the first. Grandma, Grandpa, what happened in the garden? What happened in the garden? And then to have Grandma and Grandpa share with you there was grace. That's what happened in the garden. There was grace. We sinned. We messed up. And we deserved immediate death, but he didn't show us immediate death. He, he, he covered our sin. And I get to share that testimony with you. Grandma's grandpa's focus. Great grandma's. Gra- give me some. Give me some hands of greats in the room. I need to see some. I need to see my greats. Okay. Okay. You understand your job is not done. Are you hearing me? I chewed on the kids last. I'm chewing on you now. If you think your job is done, there have been too many greats and grandmas and grandpas. They think their job is done. I can't, I, can't, I can't relate with them any longer. Figure it out. I, I, I beg of you, figure it out. We're losing our history. Because we get, we get absorbed into our devices, we get absorbed into this or that. And we're losing our history. This chapter alone has taught me we have got to know our history. And it's just a list of guys. But but why is this list of guys listed here? If we keep going through the rest of them, who do we get to at some point in history? Jesus. So history is vitally important. As much as I used to hate history. Much as when that word would come out, I would, I would just, ugh. The older I get in history, the more important it becomes. So we go through history here, 1,656 years. And, and Lemmick has, well, before Lemmick, his father is Methuselah. Everybody kind of remembers Methuselah because in, in dating-wise, he, he's 969 years old when he dies. Kind of looks like he dies in the flood. When you do the math, he dies right before the flood. And I kind of lean on the side as, as maybe not very long before the flood. I don't believe he was judged in the flood. One of the, one of the meanings of Methuselah's name is it will come. 
Hmm, that's kind of interesting to me. And, and then we have Noah here, right? Noah. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. Keep your finger over there in Genesis. We're coming back. But turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. What's this chapter known for? The faith chapter. It's this this epic chapter given to us of men of great faith. And in verse 7, verse 7 of Hebrews, Noah gets included. I want to read tonight together about, about Noah's faith for a second. As we begin tonight on this period of history, that this year that is going to be hard for us to, to think about and chew on tonight. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, guess what he had never, ever seen? Nobody on the planet in 1,656 years had ever understood or knew what a flood was going to be. Like, that was not in their vocabulary. That was not in their understanding. When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save what? What was Noah's focus of his faith? His family. Very much a family message this evening. Family. He did it to save his family. He didn't, he didn't do it to save animals. <laughs> he did it to save his family. But look what it says next. Look what it says. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How did he condemn the world? Here's how. When he stepped foot in that vessel... What did that mean to everybody else that didn't go with him? They were about to be judged. How much of his family got on the ark with him? His wife, three sons, and the wives of those three sons. What about his aunts and uncles? What about his cousins? What about his sons' wives' families? Probably the hardest step he had ever taken in his whole entire life was getting on that boat. Because it meant he had to turn his back on on everybody else. Had to do what God asked him to do, no matter what. But we know from, from the New Testament, the entire time he's building the ark... The entire time he's building the ark, what is he doing? He's preaching. Peter shares that with us. He's preaching. The entire time he's building the ark. But if we go back, I need, I need, to, set, need to set what's going down here as we, as we start talking about the ark right quick. Go back to chapter 6. Verse 5 and following gives us a picture that I'm going to try to describe to you of the state of the earth and people at that point in time in history. Okay? 
as we start thinking about the ark, I need, to, I need you to have in your understanding, Noah, as he's thinking about his family, what was it like all around him? In, in, in verse 5 and following, it says this, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Wait a minute. How many people on the earth were wicked? How many of their thoughts were evil all the time? All. I don't know about you, I have been whining and complaining about some wickedness in the world. I do it quite often. The older I get, the more I whine about it. I don't think we're to this point yet. Yet. Remember, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. It says here, all of our thoughts were evil all the time. Verse 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The Lord had great sorrow over, over even making us. Do you understand how bad it has to be for him to, to say those words? You understand? I mean, I, I really can't describe to you, give you any decent picture, I don't think, that describes how bad that really was. But, but let's continue. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Now, jump over to verse 11 right quick. Now the earth was, was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. By the way, the Hebrew word there that gets translated for violence is Hamas. Hmm, that's interesting. Hamas. Verse 12. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. He was done. Are you, catch, are you catching that? He was done. But, go back to the verses we, we skipped there. Verse 8. But... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah, verse 9. See, that, that, little, that, little, word, that little phrase right there, this is the account of Noah, Some of it, sometimes it's translated a little differently in different translations. Sometimes this is the written account, or, or this is the genealogies of. And sometimes it's taught that that is like the, the, the precursor to everything that's going to come after that statement. I don't ride there. I ride that that's a signature line. So everything prior to that, that line, this is the account of Noah. So 9a, technically, when we're talking about our verse stuff, 9a, this is the account of Noah. Everything previous to that, back to the previous one, which is at the beginning of chapter 5, those are Toledo's statements. I believe all of chapter 5, the genealogies in the beginning of chapter 6 is from Noah's point of view. And then he signs his name. So the next Toledo that begins in 9b... With Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. That is the first account 
of the next Toledos. Please keep your finger there, run over, and see who signs this next Toledoth that we're actually going to read the whole account of the flood from. It's the beginning of chapter 10. The signature line for everything from, from chapter 6, 9a all the way through is from whose point of view? Whose account is written in the beginning of 10? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The first things written out of their account of this point of history is Dad was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. I pray my girls could say that about me. Fathers, we need Noahs today. As much as we need grandfathers and grandmothers, we need Noahs today. We need fathers that stand in the midst of, of just utter chaos, uh, of wickedness that we cannot even, can't even understand at times. And say, I'm standing for the Lord. He's asked me to do something. And it seems impossible. It seems impossible. Noah, there's, there's, there's going to be a flood coming. I'm, I'm going to kill everything. You've got to build a vessel. They had never seen rain. There is no biblical evidence of rain prior to this point. For 1,656 years, everything was just kind of water because the atmosphere was just, just kind of kind of wet all the time, kind of extra humidity maybe, something along those lines, watered from underneath the earth crust. And so this thing is given to Noah. Noah, I'm going to destroy everything by a flood. That would have sounded maybe not much different than I am coming back and I'm going to bring fire this time. Hello? Yeah. Have we ever seen fire coming out of the heaven? Like, have we ever seen this? See, that, that means nothing to it. And like, that's just like, yeah, right. Fire, whatever. That's <laughs> uh, uh, so much the same. He says there's a judgment coming. And this time it won't be water. Check Second Peter chapter 3. This time it won't be water. It will be fire. See, the only reason that that passage has any, any teeth to it, the only reason that passage has any truth behind it, is because it's related back to the flood again. Peter relates it back to the flood. Just as the water at that time, he's talking about the time of the flood, destroyed and deluged the world, the next time is not going to be by, by water, it will be by fire. And we hear those things. We, we have folks around us. We have family members. We have, we have those folks that we love and care about that go, don't care. I don't care. Noah, as he's preaching, as he's building this vessel, he is preaching, there is a judgment coming. I know you don't understand what I'm saying to you. I know you don't, I know you, you, you can't picture it, but he, it's coming. And you have got to be saved by getting 
by being covered. What's it say about the ark? Chapter 6. He gives him instructions, starting in verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it. Coat it with pitch inside and out. The word for coat? Kafar. The word for pitch? Kafar. Those two words in the Old Testament are atonement and paying a ransom for something. A price for life. Hello? The two words that he tells Noah as he's building the vessel, you need to cover it and pitch it. It is going to be an atoning vessel. I am atoning. I'm atoning for the sin on this planet. I'm going to cover your family. And I'm going to pay a price of life for it. If you, if you think for a second that grace was not shown to Noah and his family, you're missing it. They weren't sinless. But they were righteous in his eyes. God looked on them and said, you're worth it. Out of how many people? Oh, there's something we never think about. I never did. We, we talk about the eight that got on the vessel. We hardly ever talk about, well, what could have the population of the planet have been? There's guys that have chewed on that. Obviously, it's all speculation. But if you have, but if you have this record given, the average age is over 800 years for everybody. Let's say every family has 10 kids, probably highly conservative. Ten kids, and everybody lives 800 years. You understand what population does, right? Population does not just go like this. Population growth is like, woo, right? In 1,656 years, you could have any population between 2 billion and 10 billion people, starting with two. With 800 and some lifespans, 800 and some year lifespans. So put... Put in your mental image of this part of history, the population on the planet today, and Noah was found righteous. How bad was it? Oh, I can't, I can't even begin to describe it. But he begins to, to build this vessel. He, he's coding it. He, 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 let, let's pick back up. Verse 15. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of, uh, 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 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. Hmm. So this is the picture that was given to me out of a Sunday school curriculum one time. That is supposed to describe what we just read. <sighs> and it's a wonder when I show up at a church or a camp and I begin teaching about the ark, and in just a second I'm going to talk about dinosaurs on the ark, and people go, 
Why? Because our visual image of an ark we got when we were three years old, most of us. And it's still there. Hello? Speaking truth, aren't I? You see, now I'm connecting. We, we don't picture it 450 feet long. We just don't do that. We don't, we don't picture it that big. We've heard that. We've heard how big it is. We don't, just don't picture it that big. Because we were shown a picture like that. What's another problem with this picture? There's only one of all the animals. Noah always looks like he's happy. Like he's going on a cruise. I'm s- I honestly don't think he was happy. Do I believe he was thankful? By all means. Happy? No. Would you be happy if the rest of your extended family was gone? I don't see how he'd be happy at all. At all. We have... We have <laughs> motor. Motor, brother. <laughs> Sipping his lemonade. Just going on a cruise. Animals are out of control. Right? The animals are, are, are almost always outside somewhere. Right? On that. Listen. If you were not being covered by that ark... You were being judged. That's the reality of what the scripture is. You had to be covered. Now listen, listen very closely to me. If, if you put all your eggs in the shape of the ark, the whatever, you're missing it. I, I don't care what shape the ark was. We could, we could have that argument all night long. Okay, we could, we could, we could have that discussion of, of what the ark's shape was. From, from, a, from a traditional ark box idea that has been taught for, for many, many years to two answers in Genesis's kind of new ark with the, I call it the Norwegian ark, that's what I call it. It's got this fin in the front, you know. It's, it's going to keep it into the waves is kind of how, how they describe it at the ark encounter. That, that fin would have acted like a rudder in the wind and kept it in the way. That's fine. If you think it was just a boat that saved them, in what we're about to study what the flood was like, you were missing it. I don't care what shape the boat was. I do not care what shape the boat was. If it's not for the Lord's covering on that vessel, in the midst of what we're about to read that the flood was like, I don't care what shape it was. If the grace was not there, in that judgment, we're not sitting here, church. None of us. But we know he did exactly what God wanted him to do. Whatever the shape would have been, right? As he's finishing it, what begins showing up to get on the ark? Animals, right? How many? How many? Two, right? Two of all these animals, right? Two. Chapter 7, verse 2. Let's check that. Chapter 7, verse 2 says, Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal. Wait, wait, wait. Let me back up. Seven of every kind of clean animal. A male and its mate. And two of every kind of unclean animal. A male and its mate. And also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Wait, did he just take two? No. 
No, the Lord brought seven of all of the clean animals. The Lord brought seven, it says here, of every bird, every winged creature. Anybody want to put their hand up that has never read that verse ever in their whole life until right now? Yeah, I was with you. I went, what? Wait, wait. No, that's not right. That can't be right. It's two. (laughs) No, it's seven. Seven. Why would the Lord have brought more of those? Oh, because he knows Noah's heart. That's why he did that. I'll show you here in just a second. He knows Noah's heart. So the first question challenge for you this evening, does the Lord know your heart? Does he know you're going to stand against anything to stand for him? Does he know you're, you, you may be called to do insane things and you're, you're like, yeah, okay, I can do that because you're with me. Like if somebody would have said to me, <laughs> would have said to me like 20 years ago, you're going to be the president of a creation ministry someday. I would have went, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you, yeah, you'll, haul, you'll haul dinosaurs around and you'll teach people about dinosaurs in the Bible. I would, you are a liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> totally impossible to me. It's about being obedient, church. About having the faith enough to be obedient. He takes care of the details. He really does. He takes care of the details. So why were the animals on the ark? Why did God bring the animals to the ark? So they could live. So they could live, right? When they get off, what are they supposed to do? Live. Live. And what? Any, any ideas? Anybody have any ideas what they were supposed to do when they get off the ark? Anybody? Multiply. Very good. Have babies. Right? So wait. If you're the Lord, would you bring Grandpa T-Rex? Would you bring, would you bring Grandpa Elephant? Would you bring Grandpa anything? Why? What is a grandpa something going to do when they get off the ark? Die. I did not say it. I just want, I want to, I may have, I may have coaxed it, but I did not say it. <laughs> they may have died, but they definitely weren't going to reproduce when they get out. They weren't going to have babies, right? Hello? See, I find most of us in our worldview about the animals that God brought, we have full-grown animals in our picture, in our brain. Nothing in the Word of God says they were full-grown. Nothing. We get the image that they all got on under their own power. We get that, and they all got off, so there was nothing consumed on there. There was nothing that died on there. We get no record of any of that. But they were on there. So, so when it comes to these great creatures, and we'll touch on this a little more tomorrow night, but like this Edmontosaur here, this duckbill fella, this is an actual egg of one of those. They were about the size of a chihuahua when they were born. But they could grow to be quite large, like that leg back there is the hind leg of one. Would a chihuahua-sized Edmontosaurus fit on the ark? Yes. Without any issues. T-Rexes. T-Rexes 
come out of eggs about yay big. Would a young T-Rex fit on the ark? Yes. All they had to be ready to do was have babies at the end of a year. See, young everything takes care of less food Noah had to gather to feed everything, less issues of if there was carnivorous activity prior to the flood. When young tigers are, or when tigers are young, they don't look at, at us as food until they get older. They don't look at other things as food until they get older either. They could hang out with stuff and not be, not have a problem. Takes care of space issues on the ark. Hello? More than enough room. Ken Ham, those guys over there in the ark, they took this fellow by the name of Dr. Woodmerap. Dr. Woodmerap did this extensive study and said, you know what? If we look at everything that we have extinct and alive today, and we, and we go back to, a, to maybe what the original kinds were, we, we would have enough room on most likely one floor of the ark to fit all the animals. So then the question needs to be, why was the ark so big, most likely? See, we often ask the question, was the ark big enough for everything? Like, I can't imagine everything fitting on there so... But the question we really should be asking is, was it, why was it so big? Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis as president, said this at a, at a message I heard one time. He said, you know what? I think it was big enough in case somebody wanted to turn to the Lord and get on the ark, there was room for him. I mean, he's preaching 120 some years maybe as he's building it. Did anybody? No. Nope. Nobody. Just those eight. And all of those animals, including long-necked dinosaurs that come out of soccer ball-sized eggs, they would have fit just fine. We'll talk more about the dinosaur thing tomorrow night. He gets them in. Listen very closely to me. Turn over to, turn over to chapter 7. Look at verse 16. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing. As God had commanded Noah, then the Lord did what? He shut the door. Who was in charge of the door? The Lord was. The most, the thing that caused me to scream more at my TV and my wife to say, is it time for me to shut the TV off? As I decided several years ago to finally see the movie Noah, but with Russell Crowe in it. Please don't waste an hour and a half of your life. Like I did. Because I always got questions. Man, did you, did you see the Noah movie? And we, I, we honestly, we had, we had folks in church, like, before it came out, going, Matt, we're going to try to do this as, a, as an all-church event. And then I'm like, guys, woo, easy. It's coming from Hollywood. Easy. Like, I never get excited about a Hollywood-produced Bible anything. I said, oh, guys, please don't. Don't wait, wait. Let's, let's wait and see what somebody says about it. That, oh, it's horrible. I mean, it's just, a, it's just not a good movie anyways, and then let alone just not biblical. And so 
But I, at, at, the, at the moment that the flood is starting in the movie, Russell Crowe's character that's called Noah is, is forcing the door shut. And I am literally screaming in my living room. That is not right. I'm screaming at my wife who's like, she's like, honey, you want to watch this with me? She said, nope, I'll be upstairs. <laughs> she knew, she knew, <laughs> she knows me, you know. I'm screaming at it. Like, that is just total, that is a total lie. The judgment is not up to us, it's, a, it's up to him. Because when the door shut, look with me in chapter 7, verse 11. We back up a few verses here. And it tells us when it started. Look at the details. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the fountains, or springs, of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. The beginning of the flood was twofold. It, it, was, it was not only water. It actually began with all the springs of the great deep bursting forth. That means in the, in the Hebrew here, that is the earth separating over the entire planet and then liquid stuff coming up. Could have been geysers and water as well as we know when certain things open up on the planet, things flow out of them at great magnitude. The volcanoes that we have witnessed and have on video record in the last 10 to 20 years is phenomenal. Could that be a spring of the great deep? Yes. So put in your, put in your at the beginning of the flood, put in your worldview, every volcano you have ever studied, dormant or active today, over the entire planet, going off at the same time. He, he, he was done with sin. He was done with sin. Then it says, what's the second part? The next thing that happens is... And, and, and I could share with you... Listen, I could share with you more stuff about volcanoes. Like, like we all know about Mount St. Helens, right? What it did in Washington State... In a matter of hours, it, it took a forest that looked like this and did this with it in a matter of minutes back in 1980. But then the second part of chapter 11 says, Then the floodgates of the heavens were open. When I was at Niagara Falls a few years ago, all I could, all I could, the only scripture that came to mind is I'm standing at, 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 right next to the falls was the floodgates of the heavens were open. That's what the Hebrew here talks like. It is not a Kansas thunderstorm being described in the scripture. It is, it is walls of water coming out of the heavens over the entire planet. My wife and I got to go behind the falls last year for, for my first time and to stand in that, in that corridor and to feel the power and to hear the power of that water. All I could do as I'm standing in that corridor is 
put myself in the ark for two seconds. Maybe part of the Lord's grace was to spare the sound of all of that inside the vessel. Maybe. We have no idea. I know what my dog's... I know what my little puppy dog does when she knows a storm's coming. She's freaking out. I mean, like, we will know a thunderstorm coming home in, in, in Norman, Oklahoma. We will know. If we pay attention to Tia, we will know it's coming a, roughly an hour before it ever gets to us. That's how good she is. And then that's when we're starting to flip on TVs. And, <laughs> and then when she hears, she has now figured out, when she hears David Payne on our Channel 9 CBS station, when I put him on, she goes and starts getting under stuff. She has literally went in the central bathroom in our house with no windows or doors and jumps in the bathtub. And I never trained her to do that. We have a storm shelter in, in the floor of our garage. She goes, gets behind the toilet in that bathroom or in the tub. We have to close that bathroom off when so that we can get her into the storm shelter with us. Maybe they were spared from that sound. Maybe. I mean, it was, it was, we've seen the utter chaos that water can do, the power of water, the devastation of water. In 2011, a 9.1 earthquake off the coast of Japan sent walls of water that just devastated a very small point on the planet. When you think about the global planet. But all I could do as I watched in horror that day of what I was seeing was chapter 7, verse 11. And he sent floodgates of, of he sent tsunamis, he sent, I mean, can you imagine the earth opening over, you don't understand what kind of tsunamis that makes? I mean, this, this, this is small potatoes. That's why I say, I don't care what shape the ark was. If it's not for the Lord, not even that vessel's being saved. You understand this? Just, mm. So look with me back to the Word for a second. Verse 17 and following, chapter 7. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And the waters increased. They lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth. And all of the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Does that sound local? How many times does he say, increased on the earth? That is all of global reference. All of it. Isn't it interesting? At the top, at the top of Mount Everest, I used to follow guys that climbed and did that every May. Because I had this little idea that maybe I would go do Everest someday. Grew up in Colorado, backpacking and this and that. And so I followed those guys. I used to follow them. Many of them would lose their lives on that mountain trying to say they got to the top of the, the highest mountain. And every one of them, when I would read their, their biographies and the stuff they would write when they came back, every one of them, as they come to the point of, at, at about 28,000 feet, there's this point called the Hillary Step, named after Sir Edmund Hillary, the first guy that got there. They always named this, this little rock step after they've named it after him. 
And every one of them talk about the amazing thing to see seashells in the rock right there. 28,000 feet. Mount Everest did not always, it was not always Mount Everest. At the beginning of the flood, it was underwater. And then was ejected to 29,000 feet in the air. Dr. John Bubgardner, a leading, leading plate tectonic guy, he said this about... <laughs> He said this about a flood model that he developed called the catastrophic plate tectonic model. He said, we, we observe the rocks today, and, we, and what we see is, in, in igneous rocks specifically, um, we see great folds of rock all over the earth in our mountain ranges. Great folds. But they're still igneous rock. So that means they weren't heated and pressured into those folds. It means they were folded as they were still liquid. He said those folds, to do that and to get it to, that, to those heights that we have these ribbons in our, in our mountain ranges, he says, that means the plates had to be moving across the mantle of the earth like bobbing corks on the mantle. Would it had to been moving across the mantle of the earth at meters per second in history. Not the continental drift we observe today of millimeters a year. The He said meters per second. As India is sliding across the mantle and comes in and subducts under the Eurasian continent and plate, the Himalayas are made about that fast when, when it's moving at meters per second. Meters per second. So if I take this record... And we've been reading tonight. And, and if we keep going on down, uh, verse 24 of, of 7 says the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And we continue to count down. We get, by the time they come off, 371 days. 371 days. It was not just 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long it rained. The waters continued to increase for 150 days. Then it took another 150 days for it to decrease. And then a little bit longer to dry out. I tell kids all the time, Noah was on the ark, from, like, like from your birthday getting on the ark till your next birthday, and then a few more days. <laughs> Wasn't just 40 days and 40 nights. Not what this says. Okay. Yeah, so I would, I would assume by, by just reading this record, not having any other understanding, knowledge, anything, nothing... I'm going to make some predictions. I'm going to make some predictions that says... Um, there should be evidence of earthquaking and volcanic activity, most likely, on the earth from this event. I'm going to make the assumption that because of the amounts of water being described here, that's going to, that's going to pulverize things and make sedimentary layers of rock. And, and, then, and then there's probably great heat and pressure also happening during this event with those layers. So it's going to, it's going to produce metamorphic rock layers... All of the vegetation that was on the planet that gets destroyed in this event, if it's buried just right, it could possibly, it could possibly change. And maybe produce some kind of petroleum. Or coal, maybe. Maybe. 
I, I would predict that in some of those layers, as the floodwaters are rising, as the floodwaters are rising, there are mud flows burying things. And so, so the mud flows would have been under the water first, and they would have been burying things that would have lived at the bottom of the oceans first, and the waters then, and then they would have, they would have continued to fill things and got the stuff that's around the edges of the water and then worked their way from the swampy areas around the edges up through the highlands and would have buried things in ecological zones where they lived. Could be observable. What is it that we study in geology and earth science class? There's this, there's this column. It's called the geologic column. Who's seen the pictures? Who knows what I'm talking about? It's a stack of rocks that have names on them. Okay? They're, the, this stack of rocks with these names on them are to show us the history of the earth. That's, that's why it was erected. That's why it was erected the way it's erected. Please understand, nowhere on the planet, zero places on the planet do we have this entire stack of rocks right here, from here all the way to there, nowhere on the planet is the entirety of that stack found. Anywhere. Great chunks of it are missing most places. Great chunks of it. In the bottom of the Grand Canyon, some of these chunks, some of these chunks are underneath of some of these chunks. That's problematic. If that's supposed to be the epic periods of history here, from when Earth was really, really old to younger up here, and see these little numbers that get attached? Those are hundreds of millions of years attached to those rocks. So I think we've all learned, we've, we've learned this geologic column, but the question that I ask often is, 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 well, how did we get the geologic column? And guess how many people can actually tell me that? Not very many. We're taught this column. We're taught to memorize the eras. We're taught to, to memorize the layers of rock. We're, we're taught all that and how old each one of those layers are, all of that. But we're never usually taught how we got it in the first place. Well, there's this fellow by the name of Charles Lyell. Have you ever heard that name before? Good. Good class. <laughs> had folks that were listening yesterday. I said, keep, keep a name in your mind. Charles Lyell was this fellow in the early, early 1800s that him and about 29 other guys are attributed to getting together and, and, and coming up with the names in this column for each one of these layers. They're attributed to being the guys that, that really kind of founded and, and started this whole geological idea, if you will. Listen closely to me. They arbitrarily set the dates as they stacked the rocks and named them. Let me say it again. They arbitrarily set the dates to the layers of rock. Based on their worldview of how old the earth was. He said in an article, that, in a letter he had written to his sister-in-law, he said this in his, in his driving force behind coming up with this column. He said, we've got to do what will free, science, free the science from Moses. Now what does that mean? That means whatever we do in science, we've got to free it from Genesis. Because up until that point, we had a pretty good understanding that maybe this is really history. <laughs> 
But see, then there were gentlemen that came along that, that did not believe that this is history and, and said, oh, we've got to be able to explain it some other way. If it's not like this, it's got to be some other way. So, so Charles Lyell and several others begin stacking the rocks. Now, what they noticed in the rocks was that we could find these things called fossils in these layers. And so they began to identify and put index fossils with certain layers of rock. So when we find a trilobite, little underwater roly-polies over here on this plate, they are an index fossil for these lower Cambrian and Ordovician layers. So here's what they would say. Since we know that that layer is 542 million years old, then we know how old is that trilobite. 542 million years old. So when we find a layer of rock that has trilobites in it, how old is that layer? 520 million years old. Well, how would we know that? Because, well, how do we know that a trilobite is 520 million years old? Because we find it in a Cambrian layer of rock. We date the fossils by the rock layers, and we date the rock layers by the fossils. To this day. In geology. Do you, do you think I'm fibbing this evening? Wait, let me share. Harvard paleobiologist said in 05 in Discovery Magazine, he said this. He said, a great achievement of 19th century science was learning to use fossils as distinctive time indicators. Did we observe the trilobites 520 million years ago being buried in some kind of a mud flow? No. We're guessing that. But he says here, the great achievement of 19th century science was learning to use fossils as distinctive time indicators. That allowed the wonderful scale to come into being. He's talking about this scale of the geologic column. It hasn't changed. That idea has not changed. In Oklahoma, our high school biology textbook of 2015 edition, on page 343, it says this. Index fossils are fossils of organisms that existed only during specific spans of time over large geographic areas. Did we observe them 520 million years ago? Did we observe them 520 million years ago? In case you forgot your biology class about when humans show up in the history of things, we showed up only a million years ago. So we're talking about things that were 520, 19, whatever, 30 years, million years earlier than us. So did we observe the trilobites at that time to know that that's when they were living? No. But wait... Using, wait, oh, wait, go back, oh, go back. Using, look at the next paragraph. Using index fossils for, as age estimates of rock layers is not, is not a new idea. In the late 1700s, English geologist William Smith. So that was right before Charles Lyell. See, that was one of those guys. And Charles Lyell went, oh, well, he thinks that the fossils date the rocks, so let's date the, and let's just put a date on them. So, so now, so, so, so let's move forward. Everybody with me? So we're back to this column, right? And we go back to this column. So we, we date the layers by the fossils and the fossils by the layers. Okay? Then, let's, let's take this interesting idea because this is what's rattling around in most of your heads. The rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately. Like, I, don't, I don't know how that sits with a straight face. I re- honestly, I don't. 
Then it says, radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected what? For, who's heard of this radiometric dating thing? See, not very many. Wait, who's heard of carbon dating? Oh, any more hands? Yeah, see, we've heard the carbon dating thing, right? It, it's part of the bigger umbrella called radiometric dating. It's like one of them hanging off of the under, under the umbrella, okay? All right, so now, focus, stay with me. Everybody stand up for a second, because we're, we're, I'm going to get a minorly technical, nothing crazy, don't freak on me, okay? Because I need you to understand what, what I'm about to show you. Because, listen, everywhere I go, the question that I get more than anything about the age of the earth is, but Matt, we've got carbon dating. But Matt, there's radiometric dating that says it's millions of years old. And there's this stress coming out of the person that's asking me the question. We don't need stress. We really don't. With how this actually works. Okay? So have a seat when you can, when you want to. What did he just say? Radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. So if we, if we did not have these dates attached to those rock layers first, the radiometric dating wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to do it. Here's why. Because any sample that gets pulled out of the fossil record and gets taken to a radiometric dating laboratory, the first question that's asked by the radiometric dating laboratory is, what layer of rock did you get this out of? <laughs> Why is that question asked? Because there are many different radiometric dating processes or, or, or uses. There, there's, there's uranium to lead dating. There's rubidium to strontium dating. There's potassium to argon dating. There's, there's all these different methods. Each one of these methods of dating give you different ranges of ages. So if you believe that the geologic column and its dates are right, you want to make sure you use the right dating method to give you an accurate date matching the column. Is everybody with me so far? Okay. I got some nods. Okay. So let, let's look. Wait. So here is uh, in Oklahoma, our eighth grade science textbook. Let's, let's, let's learn from our science textbook real quick about this whole radiometric dating thing. Okay? So a radiometric element decays at a rate that is constant for, the, for that particular element. Scientists have calculated these rates. Because radioactive elements decay at a constant rate, we can use them as clocks to measure time. Well, how does this work? Let's say we have, let's say we have a dinosaur bone that is rock. Dinosaurs lived how long ago? What's the common idea? When did they go extinct? Give me the date. Students, come on, focus. This is your time. Shine. Give me a date. Yeah, it's 600. You've been watching, you've been reading the Bible too much. 65 million years ago. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this tomorrow night, okay? But the common given date for the extinction of all the dinosaurs is 65 million years ago. So let me ask you a question then. Carbon dating, the one that we all have in our heads is the thing that tells us the right dates about stuff, will never give you a date more than 50,000 years. What's the max for a carbon date to give you? Class? 
50,000 years. Please, please remember that number. Okay? So if, if carbon dating is only going to give you date for 50,000 years, would you use it on something that, is, that you believe is 65 million years old? Would you use that dating method? No. You're going to use a dating method that is going to give you at least 65 million or more years. So what we use for dinosaurs most times in radiometric dating is something called uranium to lead. So as a fossil is building up and becoming a fossil, it is, it is, it is eating up these uranium atoms and, and isotopes. And that is the parent product. It's called the parent product. Everybody got it? Parent. The parent thing... As it decays away at its, what, what did the textbook say? Constant or not constant? Constant. As uranium decays, it leaves behind, every half-life, it leaves behind peanut butter. No, what is, what, what is PB, class? Lead. Very good. Leaves lead behind. As uranium decays, it leaves lead so when we have a sample and we want to uranium lead test it for a date, we compare the amount of uranium to the amount of lead. And every half-life, the remaining uranium, half of the uranium in the sample in the next half-life, decays away and leaves more lead. Then we compare the two, because we know the constant decay rate of, of uranium... By the way, uranium-238's constant decay rate of one half-life is 4.2 billion years. You, you, you should be engaging your brain right now. How much of, how much of, a, of the half-life of uranium-238 have we observed, class? Take a wild guess. When did we first understand radioactivity? There's an interesting movie on Amazon Prime right now about her. Who? Marie Curie. Tells about her life. They, she held in her hand, every night when she went to bed, a vial of glowing iridium. She died of radiation poisoning. Did not understand in the late 1800s what they had. What they were dealing with. That's when we discovered radioactivity, late 1800s. So how long have we been, been watching the decay rates of radioactive elements? About 100 and, what are we, 50, 60 years, observationally? The half-life of uranium-238 is what again? 4.2 billion years. How much of the half-life have we actually observed? Okay. <laughs> There are four assumptions going into any radiometric dating process. Note takers, focus. This is your notes for the evening. Every radiometric dating process has at least these four assumptions going into the dating process. First, we have to assume we know how much uranium was there in the sample to start with to decay into the lead. Are you with me? We then have to assume we know that all of the end-up stuff, trying to make this is, <laughs> that all the lead came from the uranium. That we didn't get the lead in the sample from some other way. Like it didn't come in from, from leaching in from groundwater that was heavy in lead. Which makes us the other assumption that I'm bringing up. We have to guarantee that that sample was a closed system. All of the uranium was decaying away and leaving the lead behind all by itself and nothing was messing with it. 
No heat was close that may have, may have altered it. <laughs> no pressuring may have altered it. For how long? Millions or maybe even billions of years. And last but not least, that the decay rate has to be constant. What happens if you have a different decay rate? What does that do to your date? Totally changes it, right? Totally, totally changes it. So, wait a minute. Stanford University and Purdue University in 2010... Well, let's read. In recent years, the decay rates of radioactive elements are... Ruh-roh. Changing. This is especially mysterious as we are talking about elements with constant decay rates. These values aren't supposed to change. School textbooks, <laughs> school textbooks teach us this from an early age. Hello? Even five years after this article was commenting on the Purdue and Stanford University, they were, they were observing radioactive elements, and what they under, understood was, well, I think Stanford was trying to use one to create a, a password generator that would create a new password for security purposes on its own based on a constant decay rate. But what they observed was it was like... And they went, oh, wait, that's not constant. <laughs> it was, and it, little did Stanford know until later they were, they were comparing notes and papers that the, a group in, in Purdue was observing the exact same change in the decay rate at the same time. That's observable, testable, repeatable, <laughs> verifiable science. Did it change our textbooks five years later when the 2015? No, they're constant. We know that. Not really. Okay, so, so wait. So some of you are going, but, but I've always heard that. I mean, I've, I, wait. Diamonds. How old are diamonds? They are older than 65 million. Good, good try. Give you an A for effort. You should have just said Jesus. Okay, so here, here's the thing. So diamonds, diamonds typically are aged by the potassium argon because potassium argon dating gives you billions of years. So when, date, when dating diamonds, we, we dated them, we date them usually one to two billion years. You know how I know this? Because of a commercial. Wait, watch, watch and listen. Focus, get ready, watch the screen. Here we go. sitting in my living room last year before Christmas and a commercial came on the TV great music and I'm like oh what's this diamonds and it goes through the light anybody remember these commercials anybody catch these commercials very well done commercials like the life of this diamond started in this commercial, and they did a series of commercials that fed on themselves leading up to Christmas, hoping you will go buy a diamond that is billions of years old. I mean, it goes, it starts there in the earth crust, and then it gets found, and then it gets ground and cut, and it's put in a ring, and he frolics through the, through the, through the wilderness behind his bride-to-be, and then gets on his knee. 
It started billions of years ago. Um, it's great commercial. It's a really cool commercial. <laughs> a group in 2003 took diamonds, sent them to a carbon dating laboratory. Now, look, l- listen to me. Here's how carbon dating works. You, you compare the amount of radiocarbon to the amount of, when it decays away, carbon. Okay? There's two different carbons that decay away, and you do the same thing. You're, you're, you're measuring the difference between them. Okay? More difference means it's what? Older or younger? Older, right? If it's decayed more, it's much older. But what's the, what's the most, what's, what's like the top age? 50,000 years. That's what's said, listen closely to me, that's what's said as being the most accurate. Now, technically speaking, when you actually start reading the journals, you can actually get maybe closer to 100,000 years if you go all the way out to 17 half-lives. But see, a half-life of carbon, listen to me, note-takers, half-life of carbon, 5,730 years. So every 5,730 years, half of the carbon goes away. What happens in the next 5,730 years? Half of that radiocarbon goes away. Goes away, goes away, goes away. The radiocarbon. So all of these diamonds they sent to the laboratories, they came back with ages of 58,000 years. No, 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 wait. What's the observable part of all that? So you still have the same assumptions going into carbon dating? The observable part is, is there any radiocarbon in there? Was there radiocarbon in all of those diamonds? Yes, because they actually could date them by radiocarbon. But diamonds are the hardest thing on the planet, so they couldn't have been contaminated or messed with. The carbon that's there had to be there from the time they were made. Rot row. Oh, it gets better. Wait for it. 2015... Brian Thomas and Vance Nelson. Um, Brian is from, from Institute for Creation Research. Vance Nelson um, is a, a, a creationist in, um, he's in, in Alberta, Canada. They wrote the series, the three black books back there. Vance wrote the three black books on the table, uh, thicker, great pictured books that are back there. Okay, the Untold, the untold Secrets books. They got together and they said, you know what, let's get samples... Let's get samples from every era of the geologic column. And let's send them to the five leading carbon dating laboratories in the world. And let's see if, if, if all of those samples can be carbon dated. Let's see if all of those samples actually have radiocarbon in them. On the left of the slide are the samples. I know you can't read that. I'll give it to you later if you want it. The dates given to them from the geologic column and the evolutionary worldview of how old the geologic column is dated right next to them. So to, from 290 million year old to 10 million year old. How many of the samples had radiocarbon still in them? The stars indicate radiocarbon because that indicates a physical date that every laboratory was able to give to it. That means they observe radiocarbon in every one of those samples, even if it is 290 million year old wood. Guess what's not 290 million years old? Can't have radiocarbon. 
couldn't have it. It'd be totally gone by then. Totally gone, measurable. Every era of the geologic column. Brian has continued to do more and more research. He's sent more samples to more laboratories. He now, he, he has, he has, let's see, um, he now has, there's 30 some, I think, as of last year that he had sent in. All also came back with radiocarbon. He has not sent, last time I talked to Brian, I said, Brian, have you sent any samples from anywhere in the geologic column from around the world? These samples are from around the world. They're not like all from the same pocket, same state. I mean, he did his due diligence as a scientist to make sure the sample was wide, it, it was thorough, it was all the way through the column, it was all of the, to all these different laboratories, because you could have one laboratory that messes stuff up, right? So he sent it to all the laboratories. I said, have you sent any samples that didn't have any radiocarbon in them? He goes, not one. I said, wow, that's interesting. Do these dates match the biblical record of 6,000 years? Do they? No, they don't. Because we're still assuming when we add a date to it that that, con- that rate's been constant, <laughs> that we know how much was there to begin with. <laughs> to put the date on it is worldview. The observable science is we can see the radiocarbon and we've been observing things. Church? The history in this book is right. Coal samples, coal samples, gets argued to be somewhere between 100 and some million to 300 and some million years old, generally. The group back in 03 took samples out of Pennsylvania coal depository, samples that were dated like 300 million year old coal, like 150 million year old coal and 100 million year old coal, sent them to carbon dating laboratories. Guess what? How many of those samples had radiocarbon in them? Every one of them. And the percentage of radiocarbon that was found in each one of those coal samples was statistically the same amount. That means the vegetation that was eating up the carbon before it was buried all lived at the same time and was buried at the same time. Like a catastrophic judgment against sin says right here. A global judgment. And when Noah came off the ark, he was given a covenant that said, I will never destroy the earth in this manner ever again. We could read through it. You, you've read it. You know it. Please read chapter 9 there. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal covenant. He says everlasting and, 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 and uses the word covenant I don't know how many times. As he places the rainbow in the clouds. Beginning of 9, he says this. Then God said, Bless Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Verse 3. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you green plants. When was that? Back on day 6. Studied it last night. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you bacon cheeseburgers. Had one of those today for lunch. 
just because I knew what we were going to study tonight. It's my comfort food. We were not given meat to eat until after the flood. Doesn't mean in our violence we weren't eating and taking advantage of the animal kingdom prior to. Maybe, maybe we had a different relationship before the flood with the animal kingdom than we do now. It says here they didn't have the fear and dread until when? After the flood. Would have been easy in our violence and our wickedness to take advantage of something that wasn't scared of us. How many of you hunt? What kind of crazy time in the morning you got to get up? Yeah, you got to go sit in that little stand, right? Freeze your tuchus off, right? Right? Because they're not just going to walk up to you and go, Hey, shoot me. <laughs> right? Right? I know. I, I, I've been on one hunt in my life. I, I've gotten an elk. I got the privilege to have an elk. It was actually like that. He actually stood up right in front of me. He's like, shoot me. Anyways, okay. It was, it was much more of a shoot. <laughs> that, that analogy really doesn't work. Um, it, it was a privilege <laughs> to do what I did. Anyways. In Noah's day, in that, in that history, 4,300 years ago, to be saved, you need to be covered in the vessel of the ark. To, today, though, we're, we don't need to be covered in the vessel of the ark. We need to be covered by, by the blood of Jesus. It's the only thing that saves. It's only by, it's only by His grace. Not about what we do. It's not about any of that. It's always been about Him. It was about Him then, and it's about Him now. If you don't know Him, if you don't know the one that, that is going to bring the next judgment someday, I, 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 I beg of you that you know Him. I beg of you that you are covered by Him. It, it is real. The reason I know Second Peter chapter 3 is going to happen because we have evidence of that other judgment <laughs> with the water. It's everywhere. And it left behind stuff we're going to talk about tomorrow night. Great creatures. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you tonight again in this place for these that have come to study your word. Lord, I pray that tonight you will impact hearts and minds and worldviews for you. Lord, poke us, prod us to study. Challenge us to, to study things. Lord, I, I pray right now that not even just my words are taken, that, that study happens following this. Lord, I ask that you lead us to the resources we need. Lord, lead us to the things that we need to hear from you. Lord, you know us. Lord, I thank you for who you are and what you did in Noah's life with that family to allow us to come here tonight and to, to study your word again. In Jesus' name, amen.